This podcast is part of a series of interviews from the International Asset-Based Community Development Festival in Goa. Terry Burgle, for six years, was CEO of the Institute of Cultural Affairs in the United States. He's also a faculty member of the ABCD Institute based at DePaul University in the USA. Terry, how did you get interested in asset-based community development? Uh, I started uh, through uh, faith-based work, working with churches. I was very interested in how churches uh, carried out their social responsibility. This, of course, was in the 1960s when civil rights was very big in the United States. Um, And a part of that really was my introduction to community development, community activities. And the whole focus uh, at that time, this late 60s, as I was working, it was, well, rather than people of good spirit like myself going and trying to do things to help these poor people with all these problems, it was more of, well, what can I do to enable people to take charge of their own destiny? What can I do to build their capacities? What can I do to enable them to take charge and become agents of their own development? So over time, how's that influenced your life and what sort of things have you got involved in? Well, it was a big influence because uh, that's what I was involved in throughout my undergraduate study. I became an intern with the Ecumenical Institute that became the Institute of Cultural Affairs. When I graduated, well, I met my wife who was interested in that. Uh, we got married before we graduated from college. Nobody does that anymore, but we did. Um, but then when, uh, when we were finished with our undergraduate studies, we, we began work as uh, program officers of the Ecumenical Institute. We went to Japan for four years and worked in the inner city of Chicago and eventually went to Africa as country directors of uh, the ICA in Nairobi. Of course, there's lots and lots of learnings, but one really important one for me was in Japan. And uh, we were working in a former coal mining area that uh, the coal mines had closed. Uh, There was a lot of despair. Uh, uh, And we did a big uh, planning event that was all focused on, well, what can the community do to come together to deal with their situation? And uh, in doing that, at the end of uh, a week-long planning process, then those of us who were uh, orchestrating this, we really retreated to write up the documentation. And at the end of that week of documentation, then we went out to go talk with people about, well, how do we get started? And I ran into these uh, farmers. And the farmers said, well, great. We're glad to have you here. They were melon farmers. Let me show you what we've done this last week. And there was a greenhouse that this community of farmers, about a half a dozen, maybe eight farmers had done, and here's a greenhouse. And we go, well, that's fabulous, you know. uh, They go, yeah, we've been talking about this for years, but you know, after the planning event, we just decided to do it. And here, I I thought we were gonna have to encourage people to do things, try to convince them to do things, and they just did it. Now, at the end of the quarter, we wrote a report a newsletter that said, well, what's happened after this planning event? And we really featured this great success of them building their uh, greenhouse. And they saw that newsletter and they came and they were so angry. They were furious. Well, what do you mean? You're trying to take credit for us building the greenhouse. 
I'm like, no, no, you're, you're misunderstanding. We're not taking credit for this. We're trying to highlight the great creativity of what you're doing. No, it's in your newsletter. You're doing this. You're going to raise money off of us. And it's a problem. Well, I tell you, that's where I really learned really early on in my career. you got to be really careful if you're playing a role of an outsider trying to catalyze or enable people to do creative things because people are just very, very sensitive about this. And quite frankly, we were unsensitive in the way we did that. Anyway, that's been a benchmark learning for me that has guided me in the last 40 years. It's probably one of the biggest dilemmas in uh, this sort of work because when you're trying to act as a catalyst to mobilize people, it's often the stories that people feel inspired by and they think, well, I could do that where I live. But they're not our stories. They're the community stories. And there's an ethical dilemma in that. And how do you, how do you mobilize communities um, and help people feel inspired about what they can do using what they have? No, well, that, that, that's exactly right. And uh, it's the, the, you know, the challenge there is you always want to make them, put them in a situation, you facilitate a process, enable them to come up with ideas, but always allow them to see that this is what they were doing. And it's not about you, it's about them. And, you know, it's that quote about, well, we've, we've done things and at the end they say, well, we did this ourselves kind of thing. And as much as you want to try to do that, you often stumble on your own feet like my illustration does. And uh, uh, it, anyway, it's a big challenge. Now, I know earlier on in the conference we, or in the festival, we've been talking quite a lot about how do you, um, how do you measure impact and how do you understand what difference taking an asset-based approach to community development means. Um, do, what, what experience do you have in looking at how you evaluate things and how you help other people understand uh, what this sort of work, the difference what this sort of work can make to people? Well, uh, certainly my interest in monitoring evaluation came on the hard end of experience of having people uh, paid for by donors who supported us coming in from the outside and doing an evaluation. And I, I experienced immense frustration often in this because we had people trying to evaluate what we were doing, which I would say was an asset-based approach or enabling people to become self-reliant and the like, and playing a, a catalytic or a facilitation role in doing that, but they would they didn't get it. And uh, they would evaluate us over again, well, how many wells did you provide these people? No, we're not about providing wells. We're enabling people to see if water's an issue, what can they do to solve their water problem? But we would, we would get a lot of evaluations of, well, this is very little value added. And, uh, and of course, I didn't want to get overly defensive, but I felt like I'm not in the game of knowing how to talk with evaluators. And so that was my motivation it, you know, I was probably 36, 37, going back to graduate school, and my focus was on monitoring evaluation. You're listening to Richard Holmes in conversation with Terry Bergdahl, faculty member of the ABCD Institute at DePaul University. So what tools and techniques have you learned that have helped to navigate through that process? Well, I eventually uh, ended up in a PhD program, 
And uh, I ran in, in one of my colleagues, one of my um, PhD candidates that was with me at the University of uh, Wales in Swansea at the Center for Development Studies was Rick Davies. And he was creating a, uh, a evaluation process based on work in Bangladesh that has since become known rather popularly as uh, most significant change. Uh, and this is a, a way of, uh, I was so intrigued with it at the beginning, which was uh, because he said instead of trying to set up indicators that usually somebody in a university setting or somewhere else says, well, this is what we think uh, would might happen if you were successful, and therefore let's go to try to find uh, how you met what we thought might be success. He said, well, forget it, indicators. Let's just talk with people and have them say any in, 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 uh, intervention or whatever. What, what was important to you? What happened? What change occurred? What was the most significant change that occurred? And then he would say, well, and tell us why you thought it was significant. And um, he had a further system on how you take those same kind of questions and engage donors and other people at other levels in programs of having them talk about well what they thought were significant changes. I was really, really fascinated with this. And then I, uh, as a part of my studies, then applied it in work that I was doing in Ethiopia, working with local rural communities. Uh, and then over the years, I've evolved different kind of things, but it's the, the bedrock is having people tell stories about what's important to them and what changes occur. So some people would say, well, stories on their own aren't sufficient. Um, and many, many funders or many investors in ABCD would say, well, we, we need some data, we need some numbers. Um, so what, what sort of response can you, can you generate that, that helps people understand how this is beneficial? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I believe that... Uh, that uh, you can quantify stories. You get enough stories, you, you can pull out quantifications on this. But through the hard knocks of life, I learned that you're very naive if you present as an evaluation just simply a bunch of stories. Because it's too easy for uh, somebody who's they don't even have to be very engaged in it, but I like to say they wave their hand and they say, well, that's just anecdotal, and then they're dismissive. And so, therefore, I've always insisted in any evaluation work that I've done that we are extremely diligent in tracking every possible number we can with a program. And often that's tracking numbers just dealing with uh, how many... Uh, people came to a program, how many were women, what age groups were they in, what kind of activities did they do uh, in Ethiopia, we built terraces, well how many meters of terraces did that community do, uh, creating all, all these kind of numbers. And um, I start every evaluation report with presenting numbers, key numbers, and it's, I feel like this almost gives a reader a, a, a permission then to really hear the story and of course that's what they're really interested in, is in the story but it, without numbers it's like they feel like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be criticized or I'm not I'm not being rigorous enough and um, 
And so anyway, I just find it really important to, to have numbers always first before you tell stories. That's really helpful. I think for, for people that are researching asset-based community development or the, the, the impact of community building, what advice would you give um, a researcher in the start of that journey? Well, uh, of course I want them to become familiar with what's the concept, what's the underlying principles of an asset-based approach and that how this is different when you're focusing upon capacities and what people, what their strengths are and, and, and the like. Um, I do think that there is, it's naive on our part as people working with asset-based development to think that, well, people just uh, do things on their own and then change happens. There is a role for other structures and power and what we talk about is top-down development. Um, I like to always say that the problem is uh, a premature introduction of resources, partly because we want to change people's imagination, their attitudes, their, their self-stories. And so uh, part of the advice I would give is, is to, to, to let people see that you start with an asset-based approach, what people can do when they gain confidence, then there's an appropriate kind of role of talking about outside assistance and the like. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give a younger you about your involvement in asset-based community development? Uh, well, the starting point, of course, is that you, you begin wherever you are, working with whatever, and there's no reason not to, to, to begin to get practical experience in doing this. Whether this is what you're looking for or not, let me tell you that uh, I often get people, young people come to me and they, they've heard different aspects about my career and I worked in so many countries and I worked overseas and they go, that's the kind of thing I'd like to do. And of course, I, I usually relate to that as a question of, that's the kind of profession or that's the kind of career I would like to do. And uh, uh, part of the challenge is, is that uh, you don't just step into a job. <laughs> and uh, uh, that it, I mean, my own personal journey is, is that for 20 years I worked, well, I worked in an environment where I thought Peace Corps workers were rich. Um, but at the end of 20 years, when I didn't have any money in a bank or whatever, all of a sudden I was totally shocked to see that people were interested in the skills and abilities that I developed in those 20 years. And what, what I guess what I want to say is become clear to me is that we all need to take, uh, young people particularly, need to take, uh, well they need to borrow a page from our artist friends. Artists are committed to a life of singing or painting or whatever, but they know they can't make a living off of doing that. But they're not driven by, uh, you know, I'm not making money. It's like, well, I gotta have a day job. If I gotta have a day job, I've gotta do my day job. That's what my life's not about. My life's about doing this this artistic activity. I believe it's true for, for uh, young people wanting to promote asset-based community development or working with with uh, people or doing social change. Uh, you start with, that's what I'm about, 
how do I figure out ways to survive? And then, you know, it, it has to do with paying your dues. And eventually, that's a step, stepping stone to a career. Terry, it's been lovely speaking with you. Um, for anyone that wants to find out a little bit more about who you are, where can they can they find you on the internet somewhere? Uh, well, they can. Probably the best way, frankly, is uh, as since I'm a faculty member of the asset-based uh, Community Development Institute in, in DePaul, ABCD Institute, go to the website. It is www.abcdinstitute, uh, all one word, at uh, .org. And uh, there they'll find a, a list of faculty members, and they'll have my name, Terry Bergdahl, and then my email address and other resources are all there. Thanks so much, Terry. This podcast is part of a series of conversations from the International Asset-Based Community Development Festival in Goa.